0: Luke chapter 16. I'll begin reading in verse 19 from the New American Standard Version. Please follow along as I read. Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over here from there to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Thus reads the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that you would give me the physical strength and the spiritual energy to preach your word with fidelity, with clarity, with liberty, and with humility. I pray that you would guard my heart, that you would govern my words, that you would guide my thoughts, that the gospel would fall on good ground, that all that I say and do would be glorifying to you. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Crazy stories come on the subject of heaven. Listen to this one. It's a story of a middle-aged woman who arrived at the gates of heaven and she was waiting for St. Peter to open the gates and greet her. And while she was waiting, she peeked through the gates and she saw a banquet table and various family members who have gone on ahead of her and and they were cutting up and and having a good old time. They were sitting around enjoying this wonderful time and she sees other people too. She sees ones that she has loved and lost on earth. And they all greet her. Hey girl, how you doing? Oh, we're so glad to see you. We've been waiting for you. And so as to be expected, she longed to come in. About that time, Peter walks up and she says, Can you open the gate? I can't wait to join my friends. He says, Well, well, yes, but first, you've got to be able to spell one word. Well, what's that word? she asked. Well, it's love, Peter said. Sure, sure, I, I can do that. L-O-V-E. That's right. And the gate's open and she comes in. About a year and a half on earth... Passes And Peter asks one day if she will watch the gates for him. She does. And as she takes over the job, she looks up and outside the gate is her husband. She's super surprised and she looks at him and she's got a big smile on her face. And she says, well, well how have you been? He says, great, honey. Remember that gorgeous nurse who took care of you while you were sick? I married her six weeks after you were gone. We had a terrific time. Matter of fact... You'll never believe this. We won the lottery. And I've got $100 million. And she drove a Lamborghini. And I've got a Porsche. I mean, we were really living it up. We sold our little house where you and I lived. And we bought this humongous place in Hyde Park. It's been fabulous. It's kind of a bummer to be here, though. But but it is good to see you. By the way, how do I get in? She said, well, you have to spell one word. He said, well, what word? She said, Czechoslovakia. <laughs> Far too many people I know feel like the husband in the story. Heaven is, is kind of a bummer. In fact, many Christians are so earthly Minded That they are no earthly good. C.S. Lewis said it well, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. We say the, the world is not my home, but sometimes I sure wish it was. J.C. Rouse says, I pity the man. Sounds like Mr. T. I pity the man. Who thinks little about heaven? Can I just say right at the outset, and and boy, this is a hard pill to swallow. If you are here today without Christ, and if you were to die tonight, all of those terrible things, all of those horrible things that we read about in Luke 16 about the rich man, how he was in torment, how there was no mercy how there wasn't even a drop of water to cool off his tongue. There was only agony and flames. All of those things will be yours to the nth degree for all eternity. There is no purgatory. For Abraham says there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to here ever. Let me put it this way. If you are here today and have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, then you can take solace in the fact that this is as close to hell as you will ever get. But if you are here today without Christ and you die tonight, this is as close to heaven as you will ever get. Think about that. God wants heaven for you because heaven is for real. And all you have to do today is do what the rich man and our text needed to do, and that is repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Here's our bottom line: the point of our sermon today is very clear. The purpose of your life is very clear. There is a heaven to be gained, and there is a hell to be shunned, and the time to choose between these two destinies is right now. Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He says, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He says, Having a desire to depart and be with Christ is very much better. I tell people all the time, especially young people, that what you do with Jesus Christ is the only decision that you will ever make that lasts forever. And how you respond to the word of God determines where you spend it. Simply, there is a heaven to be gained and a hell to be shunned. Write this verse in the margin of your Bible. If you are at all struggling with what I just said, or maybe you're here today, as Jeff said, and you are a believer, and you need hope, then this verse is for you. Because like Paul, I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, that you will not grieve as those who have no hope. This verse that I'm about to share with you is Jesus' heart for you. And it's not only his desire for you, it's his promise to you that this is what heaven is going to be all about. It's John 17, 24, where Jesus in his high priestly prayer prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. So that they may see my glory, the glory which you have given me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. And by implication, you have loved them before the foundation of the world. Listen, beloved, Jesus is our hope. He is the hope of heaven. And when we believe in him, we have the assurance that we will live with Christ and with each other forever. That's how come Christopher Love's life was about to come to an end. And as he sat there in a prison cell waiting his execution, his wife, Mary Love, can write him this letter. Listen to this. July 14th, 1651. To her hubby. Before I write a word further, I beseech thee to think not that it is thy wife, but a friend, now that writes to thee, I hope thou hast freely given up thy wife and children to God, who hath said in Jeremiah 49 11, Thy maker will be my husband and a father to thy children. Oh, that the Lord would keep thee from having one troubled thought for thy relations. I desire freely to give thee up into thy father's hands and not only look upon it as a crown of glory for thee to die for Christ, but as an honor to me that I should have a husband to leave for Christ. I dare not speak to thee nor have a thought within my own heart of my own unspeakable loss, but wholly keep my eye fixed upon thy inexpressible and inconceivable gain. Thou leavest but a sinful, mortal wife to be everlastingly married to the Lord of glory. Thou leavest but children, brothers, and sisters to go to the Lord Jesus, thy eldest brother. Thou leavest friends on earth to go to the enjoyment of saints and angels and the spirits of just men made perfect in glory. Thou dost but leave earth for heaven and changest a prison for a palace. And if natural affection should begin to arise, I hope that the spirit of grace that is within you will quell them, knowing that all things here below are but dung and dross in comparison of those things that are above I know thou keepest thine eye fixed upon the hope of glory, which makes thy feet trample on the loss of earth. My dear, I know God hath not only prepared glory for thee and thee for it, but I am persuaded that he will sweeten the way for thee to come to the enjoyment of glory. When thou art putting thy clothes on that morning, oh, think, I am now putting on my wedding garments my fine linens, to go to be married to my everlasting Redeemer. When the messenger of death comes to thee, let him not seem dreadful to thee, but look on him as a messenger that brings thee good tidings of eternal life. When thou goest up the scaffold, think, as thou hast said to me, that it is but the fiery chariot to carry thee up to thy father's house. And when thou layest thy precious head down to receive thy father's stroke, remember what thou said to me. Thou, thy head was severed from thy body, yet in a moment thy soul shall be united to thy head, the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. And though it may seem something bitter that by the hands of men we are parted a little sooner than otherwise we might have been. Yet let us consider that it is the decree and will of our Father, and it will not be long ere we shall enjoy one another in heaven again. Let us comfort one another with these things. Be comforted, my dear heart. It is but a little stroke, and thou shalt be there where the weary shall be at rest, and the wicked shall cease from troubling. She finishes this way. Remember that thou mayest eat thy dinner with bitter herbs, yet thou shalt have a sweet supper with Christ that night. My dear, by what I write unto thee, I do not hereby undertake to teach thee, for these comforts I have received from the Lord by thee. I will write no more, nor trouble thee any further, but commit thee into the arms of God, with whom ere long thee, and I shall. Farewell, my dear, I shall never see thy face more till we both behold the face of the Lord Jesus on that great day. Signed, Mary Love. Beloved, if you are here today and you need hope, if you are here today and you need comfort, if you are here today and you need joy, then borrow the faith of Mary Love. She had an extraordinary faith. Not that her, her faith had an extra measure of grace, but rather the object of her faith was extraordinary. That is the Lord Jesus. You see, Mary and Christopher Love were, were able to face death with such hope, with such perspective, with such gospel truth, because their eyes were fixed upon the Lord Jesus because day after day, Mary Love was looking upon her Savior and finding him to be all that he said he would be. They were focused on him. And that's precisely what Jesus wants us to do with our passage this morning in Luke 16. Luke says, if you want extraordinary faith and greedy hope in the face of death, then you must focus on Christ in all that comes with it. You say, what comes with it? Well, Luke says that there are at least three promises. You and I will will have access to the Father's house. You and I will experience unending joy at Christ's side. And you and I will enjoy the fulfillment of all of our deepest longings. Therefore, as we face death, as we look to heaven... As we look to Christ, we must focus on three things. Here they are. Here's our outline. We must focus on where we are going. We must focus on who we are going to be with. And we must focus on how we are going to get there. The where, the who, and the how. Let's look at where we're going. Verse 22 says, Now the poor man died... And was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. Verse 23 says, In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now as we look at this passage, I want you to look at it from Lazarus' perspective. In my mind, this may be the most complete account from the lips of our Lord about the Intermediate state, or what happens when we die. And although Lazarus never speaks, he gives personal testimony to what it is like to be in heaven. And the first thing he tells us about where we're going is that it is a real place and real people are really going there. He says, Heaven is for real. He says, Heaven is a real place you know this. In John 14, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. He also says to the dying thief on the cross, today you shall be with me in what? In paradise. That dying thief was promised a conscious experience of paradise immediately following his death. And Christ promises the same thing to you if you will cry out to Him, Remember me. It says, John Milton puts it, Thy presence makes our paradise, and where Thou art is heaven. Simply, heaven is a place, and that place is paradise. And so Lazarus was in heaven. He was in paradise. And if hell is a place of torment, then I think it is fair to say that paradise is a place of full divine contentment. Heaven is a place of eternal contentment and joy and peace. It's a place where our faith will be fulfilled forever. It's joyous living in splendor in the presence of Christ for all eternity. Now try, just for a second, in your seat, to contemplate Infinite contentment. Or how about infinite joy? Or how about infinite peace? Listen to what Thomas Watson in his little book, The Art of Divine Contentment, says. He says, I know that there will not be perfect contentment here in this life. Perfect pleasure is only at God's right hand. Yet we can begin now to tune our instrument before we play the sweet music of contentment with perfection in heaven. He says, Are you content, Christian, with the little? You will see greater things than these. God will distill the sweet influences of his love into your soul. He will raise up friends for you. He will bless the oil in the pot. And when that is done, he will crown you with an eternal enjoyment of himself. He will give you heaven, where you will have as much contentment as your soul can possibly thirst after. Number two, we could say that in heaven, we will be ministered to by angels. Lazarus was carried away by angels. You'll recall in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22 and 43, now an angel from heaven appeared to Jesus, ministering to him. Same word. What a thought. Heaven will be full of angels worshiping and ministering to you. Heaven will also be a place where our physical and spiritual thirst will be quenched. Apparently, Lazarus had living water right at his fingertips. Look at verse 24. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. Some water that must have been. But that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because in Revelation 21:17 it says, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. In heaven, we will have our spiritual and physical thirst satisfied. Now picture this. Picture Christ pouring you a glass of living water. Even as I think about it right now, my, my hands, they start to shake. I mean Can you imagine? I love the piece. Whom have we, Lord, but thee? Soul thirst to satisfy. Exhaustless spring, the waters free. All other streams are dry. In heaven you will find satisfaction in the streams of living water and no other streams will satisfy. Heaven will also be a place where there is eternal comfort. Verse 25 says, but Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Jesus says, Lazarus is being comforted and heaven is a place of eternal comfort. He says, no tears. We've never known such a place. We were crying when we were born. And some of us have been crying ever since. We were screaming when we came to this earth. Many are weeping alongside the bed of those who are dying. Many are weeping at the thought of a loved one who passed away many years ago. Some are crying right now thinking about the imminent death of a loved one. Some are crying just thinking about the day that they will die. Tears, constant tears, pain, suffering. But Jesus says, in heaven, no more. In heaven, no more crying, only comfort. And the list goes on. No more wheelchairs. No more crutches. No more hospitals. No more funerals. No more cancer wards. No more strokes. No more grim diagnoses. No more addictions. No more suicides. None of the things that bring pain and tears. Now stretch your mind and try to think about forever and ever with no pain and sadness. With no tears, with no sickness, with no suffering, with no death. Remember this, Murphy's law doesn't apply in heaven. There's one more reality of heaven that I think takes the cake. It's that heaven is a world of love. I borrowed this phrase from Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, heaven is a world of love. Edwards says heaven is a place where love is an endless deluge and fountain of delight and bliss flowing in and out of us infinitely and eternally so that the next time you are at a funeral especially for a friend or a loved one or the next time you are mortified by your own mortality listen to God saying to you that everything in life is temporary except for his love Everything in this life is going to be taken from us except one thing, and that's God's love. God's love, which can go into death with us and take us through to his arms. It's the one thing you can't lose. It's God's exception clause. Look, if all the above is true and heaven is going to be paradise regained, then you want to go there. So don't let unbelief and sin cause you to miss paradise because that's where we are going. Let's look at the who. Let's look at who we are going to be with. Verse 22 says, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. What? Verse 23 says, In Hades the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. The poor man dies, and he's carried away by the angels to to Abraham's bosom, whatever that means. This is language that expresses the fact that God sends his holy angels to gather one of his own into glory. This is gloriously hopeful and peaceful and wonderful. Now, what does it mean, right? To be taken to Abraham's bosom. People in the past have pressed hard here and said that this is some technical title for some special place. I don't think it's a technical term at all. In fact, it's the the only time this is ever used in the Bible. Abraham's bosom. I think a better way to understand it is to focus on what bosom means. It's a very rare word in the New Testament. When is the last time you use bosom in one of your conversations? In fact, here's something very interesting. Other than here... Whenever the term is used of a person, it always has to do with Jesus. In John 1.18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And perhaps my favorite verse in all of the Bible is John 13.23, which says, There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. One thing stands out to me from that verse among many is that his true disciples have great access to him. I mean, can you imagine reclining with Christ with your head in his lap and your head near his heart? The scene is a a low table where guests had to recline. Verse 25 says that disciple leaning back against Jesus John was clearly in a, in a position so that his head was near Jesus' side. As I said, tables in, in that culture were very low, and reclining was a typical position for people who were sharing a meal. This means that Lazarus was reclining at a banquet table in a celebration of joy next to Abraham, but even better, next to Jesus. Lazarus was the guest of honor, and Christ was the MC. Imagine sharing a meal with Jesus Christ, being with him, gazing at him, talking with him, worshiping him, embracing him, walking with him, laughing with him, and to think he chose you to be his guest of honor. And so when Luke says that Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, it means that he went to be where Jesus was to be with him. I love the way William Hendrickson puts it in his comments on this passage. He says, to recline in Abraham's bosom, As the Apostle John was going to recline in the bosom of Jesus indicates special favor and a special relationship. In heaven, we will have a face-to-face, exclusive relationship with our Savior, gloriously enjoyed without interruption or heartache or grief or sin or the threat of death. There's a book by the late Albert Martin called Grieving, Hope, and Solace, when a loved one dies in Christ. And in it, he grapples with heaven following the death of his wife, Marilyn, of 48 years. He says, although in many ways she had been taken from me incrementally during her battle with that wretched disease, the reality of the finality of death and the radical separation, its effects swept over me. A few moments later, as I picked up her lifeless body, I found myself asking the question, what precisely has just happened to Marilyn? What has she experienced, and what is she experiencing now? He says, for several months after the death of Marilyn, I would awake every Lord's Day morning, especially conscious of the aching loneliness of being a widower. As I would make my way to the kitchen to prepare my morning coffee, I tried to picture what that day would be for her in the presence of Christ. He says, I imagine her looking down at me with a pitying yet sinless look and saying, Oh, Al, you poor creature, still tied to that body of your humiliation. There you are, trying to wake up thoroughly before you go to your study to worship and pray. I've been worshiping all through the night while you slept, and I'm not a bit tired. I'll be worshiping all day today, and I know it will not be a wearisome activity. I will not lack words to give vent to my felt joy and gratitude, nor will I struggle to find abundant substance for my praise. My spirit has been released from every sinful inhibition and distraction. So when you go to bed tonight, weary through your labors among all God's people, I will still be engaged in worship. No night. No weariness, no need for sleep, nothing now but blessed rest from all the struggles of the life I lived when I was still there with you. All that to say what it means to be at Christ's bosoms, to be at Christ's side. And when we die, we will be with him forever and ever in his presence, endowed with his perfections. There's another implication I shall mention briefly that we can draw from the phrase Abraham's bosom. It's that if Lazarus was taken to the place where Abraham was, and Abraham is representative of every believer, I mean, do I have to sing the song, Father Abraham, how many songs? If he's representative of every believer, and if Abraham is in heaven, and every believer is in heaven, then to be with Abraham is to be with every single believer who has died in Jesus Christ. Let that comfort your heart that when your loved ones who die in Christ breathe their last, they immediately enter the company of all those whom they have come to know and love at a distance. And So just as we will be face-to-face with our Lord Jesus Christ, we will be face-to-face with all of them as well. Believers who die in Christ go to be with Christ, and they go to be with Abraham, and they go to be with every believer who has ever lived. And they go to have intimate Personal fellowship with all of them. Christ, with Abraham, and with loved ones. You will be with the people you have seemingly lost. We will be with the Lord together forever. Perfect personal relationships of love that last forever. Can I just say that there's nothing more practical than to focus on the presence of Christ as you think about heaven? To focus on Christ and his glory? St. Augustine writes in the city of Christ, in heaven we will see Christ and his glory and the most exhilarating experiences on earth, skydiving or extreme sports will seem tame compared to the thrill of seeing Jesus, to the thrill of being with him, gazing at him, talking with him, worshiping at his feet, embracing him, eating with him, walking with him, laughing with him. Beloved, it's when we grasp this truth, that heaven will have a profound effect on our holiness now. A man who, who sees himself seated with Christ in heaven in the very presence of a God to whom the angels cry out, holy, 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 won't spend his evenings viewing stuff on the internet that he shouldn't. No wonder the devil is so intent on keeping us from grasping what it means to be with Christ now and in eternity. For if we see ourselves in heaven with Christ, we will be drawn to worship and serve him here and now. That's what Colossians 3 1 says. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Lastly, before we draw out some practical implications, let's look at how we are going to get there. The how. Our Lord has Abraham say in verse 25 and following, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now, underline that in your Bible, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, I beg you. I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Did you catch that phrase right smack dab in the middle of those verses? Besides, there is a great chasm fixed. Circle that. Because I would argue that that phrase leads to the most important question in the history of the world. And that is, how do we cross the chasm? How do we cross from hell to heaven here and now? How do we gain heaven and shun hell? I believe that is why the rich man says what he says. Then I beg you to send him to my father's house to warn my, my brothers so that they will not come to this place of torment. Now, what does Abraham say in response? He says, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He says, if you want to cross the chasm from hell to heaven, you have to believe the Bible and what it says about the God who can do the impossible. Let me say that again. Write that down. If you want to be able to cross over from here to there, you have to believe the Bible and what it says about the God who can do the impossible. Abraham's right. Once a person dies, there's no going back. There's no crossing the breach. We are not able to to cross over from heaven to hell and vice versa. He says that those who wish to come over here to there will not be able. He says, none may cross over from there to us. He says, it is impossible. Now, watch this. Do you remember? You read it earlier in the service, our first passage. Do you remember that conversation that Jesus has with the rich man? Matthew 19 and Luke 18. The rich man asked the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Same question. He says, I want to cross the chasm. He says, I just want to make it to heaven. He says, I just want to make it in. He says, I just want to cross that river. I just want to be free from sin. I want my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And when this life is over, I just want to have eternal life you know what Jesus does? He points them to the Bible. And he says in so many words, you have to believe the Bible and what it says about God who can do the impossible. But see, when the rich man heard these words, he became very sad. And do you remember what the disciples said? Jesus, then who can be saved? I love Jesus' answer. The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter says, behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus says to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left everything for my sake who will not receive many times as much at this time, here and now, and in eternal life in heaven. And then it is what he does next that is the answer to our question. In fact, it is the answer to everything. Jesus says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about me will be fulfilled. What's that, Jesus? He says, I'm glad you asked. He says, I will be handed over. I will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged me, they will kill me. And the third day, I will rise again. That's it. God in Christ did the impossible for you. You say, how did he do it? This is how he did it. You know there's only one other person in the Bible that is described as wearing a purple robe? That's right. It's Jesus. In Mark 15, 17, it says they dressed him in purple, and after twisting a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing down before him. And after they mocked him, they took the purple robe off of him, and they put his own garments back on him, and they led him away to be crucified. Watch this. Jesus Christ was stripped of his purple robe and dignity so that we could be clothed with a dignity and a righteousness that we don't deserve. What about that word splendor in verse 19 of our text? It's actually the same word used of Jesus in Luke 9.31 at the Mount of Transfiguration when he was clothed in, in splendor and talking about his death and resurrection. You could put it this way. Jesus gave up his splendor to save us. What about his wealth? And though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. He was cast far away so that you and I could be brought in here. He was thrown away. He was far away. He was getting the fire. And on the cross, he suffered a billion hells for you for me. So when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hear him saying to you, I love you so much that hell was worth it. This is the barrier that is between us and God, but Christ has removed it. He literally crossed it. This is your Jesus. God has promised all of you this if you just come to Christ. And all we have to do is open up to Him. All we have to do is love Him. All we have to do is listen to Him. And all we have to do is repent. Isn't that what Abraham said? All you have to do is repent. As we close, let me give you three warnings. Three warnings, for love warns the loved. So if you're taking notes, you'll want to jot these down. The first lesson is this. The person who does not let Christ into their house in this life, Christ will not let them into his Father's house in the life to come. That's right. There are two houses at war here. Did you notice in verse 27, the rich man says, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him, Lazarus, to my father's house. And had Lazarus chosen to to speak up, I'm fairly certain he would have said, I can't go to your father's house because I am in my heavenly father's house. It's exactly the same words used in John 14, 3. It's our heavenly father's house that we are longing for. And Jesus says, Then you have to let me in to your house. You know, there was one rich man that understood this, Zacchaeus, a wee little man. And like Zacchaeus, Jesus is looking up at you today, and he's saying, hurry, come down, for today I must stay at your house. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him, and he will dine with me. And remember, even if you invite him in, you just can't leave him in the front room. You know what I'm talking about. It's that good room or the great room in your house. It's the room, in my case, with the plastic furniture on it. It's the one with the, with the vacuum line still in the carpet. It's the room that's right up front by the big window so that when people walk by, they say, wow, that house is clean. Wow, they've got Jesus. No, Jesus is just in that one room, and the rest of the house, the rest of your life is a mess. Jesus, he always knocks before he enters. He doesn't have to. If anyone has the right to barge in, Christ does, but he doesn't. Listen, if you are here, hear him knocking. Hear him knocking. Hear him saying to you, let me in. Because if you don't in this life let him all the way in, then in the life to come, the roles will be reversed and you will be standing outside knocking. Lesson number two, the person who receives only good things from God in this life will only receive bad things from God in the life to come. Now who does Lazarus remind you of? Who else in scripture has sores? Who else during his life received bad things? Job, you remember what he says to his wife? Job 2.7 says that Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And it says he took pot shard to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. And his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But heed his words. Heed what he says. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Here it is, shall we not accept the good things from God and not accept the bad things from God also? It's Romans 8.28, Job edition. What does Romans 8.28 say? And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good, to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. I love the way Jonathan Edwards outlines this passage, and it's worth memorizing. He says, the bad will turn out for good. The good things can never be taken away from us. And the best things are yet to come. Need I say more? Remember that. Here's our final warning. Third and final lesson. The person who ignores the word of God in this life will be ignored by God of the word in the life to come. This is the whole message in a nutshell. The rich man learns this, albeit too late. This is why the word of God will continue to be the watershed issue in every generation. And not just the word of God, but how you read it and what you believe about it. The word will be under attack. The word will be diluted. The word will be ignored. The word will be set aside. They will do to it what the rich man does to it. They will relegate it to the old, irrelevant history pile. The word will be explained away and scoffed at. It will be totally ignored. But the truth is, you and I can't live without it. Your day of death is coming. My day of death is coming. And you can't escape it. And it will be sooner than you think. We're closer than we've ever been. And what we have to do is believe the word of God. Ask yourself this question. Which would you think is more powerful as a testimony to the reality of the gospel? Meeting someone who has risen from the dead or a Bible? Well, Jesus is one who rose from the dead. And you know what his answer is? The Bible. This is the Jesus you can't ignore. And the Jesus you can't ignore is found in the Bible. The only way you won't be guilty of ignoring him is if you listen to what he is saying to you in the Bible. Isn't that what Abraham says to the rich man? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He says to you today, you have the scriptures, hear them. Listen, you will not have an opportunity to turn to Christ once you have breathed your last. Now is your opportunity to turn to him, right now. God's not into games when it comes to eternity. He talks straight talk. And he's giving you the most compelling thing in the word, his word. And you will have to do a number to ignore it. But if you really let it sink in, it will haunt you to the pillow tonight as it should if you've never trusted in Christ. There's that verse in First John chapter 5 that says this. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. If you've heard this story, I'm sure many of you, but it brings a beautiful ending to what I wanted to say to you today. It's called The Rich Man and the Beggar. Now, the rich man had a great art gallery in his home. The only thing he loved more was his only son. He was a good son, and the son would walk through town, and he would always stop by the beggar's place. The rich son would give the beggar some bread and then would engage the poor beggar in conversation, and they would talk about his father's art gallery. The beggar said, you know, I I can draw too. And so he said, the next time you come back around, bring some paper, and I will draw you something. And so the next time, the son stopped by and brought some paper, as promised, and and the beggar drew a a portrait of him. He said, this is my my meager attempt at a portrait of you. And the son was was quite happy to take it. But some time went by, and the the son stopped coming. And so one day, the beggar decided to go to the rich man's palace and and pay the son a visit. When he got to the gate, he said to the watchman, what happened? There used to be a, a young man who would always come to see me. The watchman said, oh, he, he passed away. He said, oh, wow, I didn't know that. So the watchman said, but, but go on now because there's going to be a gallery and an auction of the art gallery that the rich man gave his son. So you can't be here. But the beggar longed to see the son again. And even if it was only through the portrait, he had drawn him. So he snuck around the back and he, he slips in to see the art gallery. As he walks into the room and all of those great paintings, he sees his own etching on the wall front and center. But before he could make his way over to it, the man doing the auction starts the bidding. He pounds the gavel and he says, before we get on with the action, the father left in his will this proviso, that the portrait of his son be auctioned first. No one bid on it. The beggar didn't have any money. All he had was a few breadcrumbs that had fallen from the rich man's table. But no one else was bidding on it. So he reached into his pocket and he took out the breadcrumbs and said, I bid on that painting. And so the auctioneer took the painting off the wall and, and gave it to the beggar. But as the beggar was leaving, the cavalier the said, wait, wait, wait. The rich man made one more proviso in his will. It states that whoever gets the son gets everything. He gets the estate He gets the entire collection. He gets everything. And so I ask you today, have you got the son? Because he who has the son gets everything. You get the entire estate. You get the entire collection. You get everything. You even get eternity thrown in. For whoever loves the son has life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Your word is life. Believing what your word says about your son, Jesus Christ, who you freely gave over for us all. It's believing in that word that grants us eternal life. I pray today, Lord, that we would take solace in the fact that we now can know where we are going if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Not only where we are going, but who we are going to be with. But not only who we are going to be with, but now how we are going to get there. Press these truths on our hearts. May they bring hope and joy and comfort to us. And may Christ be all in all until we see him face to face in heaven. Christ, it's in your name that I pray. Amen.